Good morning. The scripture says, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I must not be righteous because I was praying Jamie wouldn't be, Jamie and family wouldn't be going, so, oh well. God is sovereign. Uh, I also want to introduce, we have one of our missionary families, couples, families is here with us. They'll be here, it's Kellen and Becca Hirodo, uh serving in Malawi. Are your, are your boys here? Are they downstairs, Jaden and Yami? So get to know them, those of that don't know them, get to know them while they're here. They're here a month or so? Oh, oh, wow, great. That's exciting. Uh, In your notes and up on the screen, there's a question. Boom. There's a question. Uh, What are you passionate about? Uh, What do you care about? What do you love? What do you desire? Now, a good way to discern... Uh, your passions, is to ask yourself, what, do I, what am I willing to stand up for? What am I willing to defend? What do I spend my time and my, and my money on? What do I tell others about? What do I post over and over on Facebook? A soldier is usually passionate about his or her country. A husband should be passionate for his wife and vice versa. Parents should be passionate about their children. A fan. That word fan comes from the word fanatic, if you don't know. Is passionate about their team. I know that should be the Cubs, but I'm sorry, Patty. I can't. I have to, my mom feeds me more than you do. I'm sorry, I'm joking. Uh, People with taste buds are passionate about chocolate, right? And most of us are very passionate about ourselves. There's a reason we invented the selfie, right? So what are you passionate about? I mean, take a second in in your mind to think about it. If, If you're passionate about it, you're probably already thinking about it. It's what you think about. Maybe write something down there in your notes. What am I passionate about? So as we're thinking about our passions, this morning... I want us to look at Jesus' passions. And more than just seeing them, I I want us to be impacted by them. For those here today who are followers of of Christ, who claim to, to be followers of Christ, who say, Jesus is my Lord, my Savior, my Master, my King, I want to advocate for and encourage us to share, to adopt His passions. To allow his passions to rule over our passions. So to do that, we need to ask the question, what is Jesus passionate about? And it's by looking at his words and deeds, especially in the four Gospels, that we can answer this question. As he heals the sick and raises the dead, as he teaches the crowds and trains his disciples, as he dines with sinners and rebukes religious leaders... And as he willingly goes to the cross, dying in our place for our sins, in all of this and more, we see what Jesus is passionate about. We see what he cares about. Who he loves, what he desires, who he stands up for, what he defends. And I wish we had time to look at uh, his entire life. 
What we might, that we might grow in our understanding and that we might begin to adopt his passions. Possible, I was thinking, possible future sermon series. What is Christ passionate about? But, but today we're going to look at one story. It's a story where Jesus gets very passionate. And it's a story that in many ways, I believe, summarizes what's at the heart of his passions. It's the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's recorded in all four Gospels. But we'll focus on Mark's account. We'll be in Mark chapter 11, just verses 15 through 19. You might want to turn in your Bibles there. Now before we get to the cleansing of the temple, we need to set the stage. To help us understand the passion that Jesus will show, we need to first look out the sort of the layout of the temple. This is going to help us. I've got a picture uh, to help us visualize the layout of the temple. The temple was in the center of Jerusalem, and it was surrounded by a wall. You see the wall all around? And there were some gates in the wall. This may not be to scale. I think it's, it's actually the wall is more spread out than that, but to get it all on there. They put it there. Surrounded in this, this, the temple is surrounded by these courtyards, these outdoor courtyards. On the outskirts was the court of the Gentiles. So this is the court of the Gentiles. Here, here, the largest area. And this is where non-Jews, where Gentiles, uh, foreigners could go and worship God. Then once you walk through the, the court of the Gentiles, you'd come to a sign that basically said, Gentiles, stop. Uh, Go no further. And that would be around in here. But if you were Jewish, you could keep going. Keep going into the, the, what's in here is the women's court, the court of the women. This is as far as Jewish women could go. And they would worship there. Next was the court of Israel. Keep going in, in in this area. Court of Israel, where, where Jewish men could worship, followed by, as you keep going in, court of the priests, where the priests would worship and where they would do their priestly duties. We're not going to go into what that was, but that's, the priests could go in there. And these were all out, outer courts, outdoors. Then you would come to the temple building itself. So that's the temple building itself, where you would have the holy place as you go in, and finally, the holy of holies where God symbolically dwelt among His people. The Ark of the Covenant there, the mercy seat. We've talked about that even uh, as we were going through the Old Testament. Uh, The Holy of Holies was separated from the rest by a curtain, a veil. This represented the separation between a sinful man and a holy God. So that's the layout of the temple. Now the events of Mark chapter 11... 15 through 19, take place in the temple following Jesus' triumphal entry. So he's entered the city. Remember, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And just a couple days, so it's in between the triumphal entry and the crucifixion. So just in a couple days from now, Jesus is going to be crucified. In fact, what we're going to read, in part, is what leads to Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion. Mark chapter 11, verse 15, starting there. And they, Jesus and his disciples, came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. 
And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. And this leads to the crucifixion. They didn't like what Jesus had just done, for they feared him because all the crowds were astonished by his teachings. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So, what is Jesus passionate about? Why is he so angry? Righteous anger. Be angry, but do not sin. Jesus accomplishes that. Why is he so angry at what's going on in the temple? Well, think about something. Think about something you're passionate about, just for a second. Maybe you thought about it in the beginning. Maybe it's your spouse, someone you love. What if I were to say to you, in front of the entire congregation, why do you love him? He's a loser. Why do you care about her? She's an, she's an idiot. You think you might display some righteous anger at me? Of course. Because I'm dishonoring, I'm disrespecting, I'm discarding the person you love and you care about. The one you're passionate about. Our passions are aroused and can turn to anger, righteous or otherwise, when what we care about is being in some way attacked. And when Jesus sees what's taking place in the temple, when He sees that what He loves, what He cares about the most is being dishonored, disrespected, and discarded. It's being attacked. His righteous anger is aroused and we see His tremendous passion for, for really two things. These two things I want us to see. First, He's passionate for God's glory. Verse 15 again, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. The purpose of the temple, the reason for the temple, was to glorify God. It was God's design for his people to come in his, into his presence there in the temple. At the temple, through the priests, they were to make atonement for their sins They were to worship and honor and praise and glorify God's precious holy name. But instead, they're engaging in all kinds of commercialism, buying and selling. Uh, There was a tax used for the upkeep of the temple. And the people were forced to use certain, uh, not, most, most people carried around Roman coins. That was what business was. But they were forced to use not Roman coins. There were no Hebrew coins. There were these Tyrrhenian coins that they had to pay their tax with. And the money changers would charge extra fees so that they could get the right coins to pay the temple tax. There were also animal sacrifices at the temple. And if the people brought their own animal sacrifices, they were often declared unworthy, unclean by the priests. So they were forced to buy sacrificial animals from the priests. The temple, the place where God was to be glorified, had become a place of commercialism and corruption. And Jesus' passion for God's glory cannot be contained. In John's Gospel, it says that that Jesus made a whip of cords and drives out the buyers and the sellers. He violently, passionately overturns these tables that they're using for selling. And in verse 16, it says, And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Well, what's that about? Well, you see, the temple grounds was a pretty big place. 
It's estimated to be 30 to 35 acres, about 25 football fields. And it was in the middle of Jerusalem. So if you're on your way, so if you're on one side of the city, and you have business on the other side of the city, you don't want to walk all the way around the temple. It's a lot easier to just cut through, to go through the the temple courts. There were people hauling their merchandise through the temple. And if they met somebody along the way that wanted to buy something that they had, all the better. The temple had become a, a meeting place even, not for God's people to glorify His heavenly name, but to do business together to increase their earthly wealth. And Jesus, in a great demonstration of passion and power, says, uh, no more. This is a place of worship. This is not a place of business. Can you imagine the fire in his eyes, the intensity in his voice? Imagine his passion as he confronts those who are, are disrespecting the temple of the Lord, using it not for God's glory, but for their own financial gain. Jesus was clearly passionate for God's glory. Now, now we need to be careful when we think about applying this, this message. Don't be too quick to jump to some conclusions. We don't need to equate the temple with the church building. The application is not, okay, well, we need to make sure we don't have any uh, business going on at the church building. No more selling salsa, Bobby. That's, that's not it. Let's be clear, that's not it. First of all, these people were not buying and selling for God's purposes, for a, a short-term missions fund to see people go out. They were buying and selling for their own gain. And second, the temple and the church building are very different. Yes, the church building is a place where the people of God gather to worship. But the church building doesn't represent God's presence among His people. This building is not sacred in any way. It's not holy ground. There is no holy of holies. Because the temple... God's presence among His people is no longer contained in one location on earth. It's no longer represented by a building. With the coming of Christ, with Christ's once for all sacrifice for sin, for his death on the, with His death on the cross, the temple in Jerusalem became obsolete, unnecessary. When Jesus was crucified, the curtain, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was miraculously torn in two. This symbolized that that through Jesus Christ, we are all now allowed access to the presence of God. Paul makes this crystal clear when he writes to the church in Corinth, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So, glorify God in your body. The temple was the place of worship. The temple was the place of glorifying God, where the nation would glorify God. But now, if you're a believer in Christ, your body, who you are, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, some say they use this verse as an encouragement to take care of your physical body. And I'm fine with taking care of your physical body. I I need to do better at that. But that's not the meaning of this verse, not at all. Paul is saying that your body is now the place of worship, the place to glorify God. 
We don't worship and honor and glorify God by going to a church building once a week. We're to glorify God with our entire life, with who we are, with what we do. So the application is not don't buy and sell stuff at church. The application is just as Jesus was passionate about the glory of God, we too are to be passionate for His glory because you are not your own. You're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, then your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body, who you are, your life is to be for the glory of God because you're not your own. You're bought and paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, glorify God with all you you are, with all you have. Worship and honor God in every possible way. Declare His glory, His greatness, who He is and what He's done for you. Not just in church on Sunday mornings, which I'm an advocate of, let's do that. But always, with your entire life. So first, like Jesus, we must be passionate. We must live our lives for the glory of God. First and foremost, always above all. And second, I think this is maybe the main point of this passage even. Even though the glory of God is above it, this is the main point that Jesus is trying to make. There's another passion Jesus reveals, a passion He calls us to share. He's passionate for all people's good, for the good of all peoples. In verse 17, Jesus says, Is it not written, this is sort of why He's doing what He's doing, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it into a den of robbers. We, we talked about this word nations uh, a number of weeks ago, months ago, at our missions conference. It's the Greek word ethnos, ethnicity. We get our word ethnic. And it refers to ethno-linguistic people groups, tribes and clans and peoples. People that share a common language and culture. Jesus says, my house, the temple, shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus is quoting here from the last part of Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7. However, I want us to get the, get the whole context. Listen, uh, starting in Isaiah 56.6, God speaking says, And the foreigner who joined themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the Lord, of, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servant, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So what is God saying through Isaiah? And what is Jesus saying by quoting Isaiah? Well, some have said that Jesus is emphasizing the importance of prayer. That the application is that the church building is supposed to be a house, a place of prayer. And yes, when the church gathers together, we need to pray. We need to do more prayer. We need to, more of us need to come a little earlier and join, join Georgia down in room 117. Last room down at the bottom here as she leads a time of prayer every Sunday morning. We need to do that. But that's not the point Mark 11 or Isaiah 56 is making. Think for a moment what prayer is. Prayer is a gift for those uh, that enables us To seek uh, to be in relationship with God. 
Prayer is the ability to communicate, to worship, to praise, to honor, to glorify the God of the universe. And Jesus, speaking to the Jewish people, says His, his uh, God's house is to be a house of prayer, a house of communication, of relationship with God, of worship and praise. Not just for Israel, but for all peoples. Specifically, they all knew where he's quoting from. These are the religious leaders. They knew Isaiah, specifically foreigners, non-Jews, Gentiles who will join themselves to the Lord, those who he will bring to the holy mountain. Jesus is saying that he's going to bring not just the nation Israel, he's going to bring all nations, all peoples to behold his glory, to see his wonder, to give him glory and pray to him. So that's what Isaiah 56 is talking about. So why does Jesus quote this verse? This is the main reason we looked at the layout of the temple. We're going to go back to the temple now. Remember, you had the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of Israel, then the court of the priests, then the holy place, and finally the holy of holies. Now where do you think all these tables and benches and money changers and buying and selling and cutting through the temple, where do you think this is taking place? Do you think it's happening in the Holy of Holies? Well, no, that's crazy talk. Court of priests? No. Court of Israel? No. Court of the women? No. No, it's all set up in the court of the Gentiles. The, the, the word Bible commentary says the court of the Gentiles was, was, was primarily a bazaar with vendors selling souvenirs, sacrificial animals, food, as well as currency exchanges, currency changers. The one place where non-Jews, foreigners, the nations could come to pray to God had been turned into a bazaar for buying and selling. It had become the Jerusalem swap meet, if you will. A place not for the glory of God, but for financial gain. And what this meant practically speaking, was there was no place for Gentiles to pray. There was no place for Gentiles to seek to glorify God. The Jewish people had filled the court of the Gentiles with all their stuff and their activities, their self-serving interests. And and in the process, they had said, let the nations go to hell. We don't care about anyone else. We care about us. And Jesus, by violently clearing out the court of the Gentiles, By quoting from Isaiah 56, Jesus demonstrates His passion is for the good of all peoples, that all peoples would be able to come to know the Lord. And the question is, do we share, have we adopted Jesus' passions? Are we ruled by the passions of Christ? Are we passionate for God's glory and for the good of all peoples? I remember when I was uh, 18 years old, I knew basically nothing about the world in general. Sorry, public education, Arlington High School, uh, didn't do the job. Nothing about the peoples or people groups, ethnic groups in the world. But then someone, uh, her name was Elizabeth Elliot, if you've heard of her, told me, not Specifically me, me and Elizabeth didn't have a conversation. She was up there speaking and I was among many uh, young people listening to her. She told me uh, about the world, about what was going on. And my passions were stirred by God. 
and my life was changed. So I want us to just take a minute and think about uh, the people, the people groups in our world today. Let's see if God can stir our passions. Basically, uh, oftentimes when we use the word nations, we think of countries, right? And, and basically, there are about 195 countries in our world today. Next slide. 195 countries in our world today. But scholars have identified over 11,000 what, what they call ethno-linguistic people groups. Take, for example, the nation of India, uh, where I believe one of our missionaries is going to be going soon. More about that later. One nation with over a billion people. But those people are not the same. There are tons of different people groups in India. Uh, The Joshua Project website says that there are 2,245 people groups in this one nation. All with different languages, different cultures, variances. Also here in the United States, 488 people groups, especially in the large cities, New York, L.A., but even in cities like Riverside, you can hear many different languages and see different cultures all around you. And what we need to know is that these same scholars who've identified 11,000 ethno-linguistic people groups, they say, they've also identified 6,000 of these people groups have not been reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be unreached, not reached, this is the definition that they give it, means that less than 2% of the people in that group, and some are far less than 2%, but 2% or less in that group are evangelical Christians, gospel-believing Christians. Less than 2% of the people have heard and believed the gospel. So if you're living in one of these people groups, uh, the reality is you would be born and you would live and you would die, and the likelihood is you would never hear the gospel. These are not people who have heard the gospel, were familiar with these people, and rejected it again and again maybe. The reality is there are over a billion people who don't have access to the gospel. No Bible in their language, no church in their culture, no Christian in their community. Now you might ask, wow, how is that possible? I mean, with all the resources, money, and people we have in the Western church. I mean, we have, how, many, how many mega churches do we have in this city alone? How is it possible, after over 2,000 years, 6,000 people groups are still unreached? And I would assume, uh, I don't assume to know all the answers to this, I believe God is sovereign and He's doing something, but it would seem to me that the vast majority of Christians do not share Jesus' passion for God's glory or the good of all peoples. We read of the cleansing of the temple and we look down at those who exchange the glory of God uh, uh, and the good of all peoples for their own financial gain. They go, wow, that's terrible. How could they even do that? What were they thinking? And yet, are we not doing the same thing? When we choose our own comfort and our safety and our security and our own possessions, our wealth, our activities, our entertainment, when we spend our time and our energy and our money and our lives on more and more and more for ourselves instead of for God's glory and the good of all peoples. 
Are we in effect saying to those 6,000 plus people groups and others that live in our own community, aren't we saying, you go to hell, but we're going to have our stuff. We're going to do our thing. And really, the bottom line, and, and I'm speaking to myself as part of this, the bottom line is that we as the church, especially in the wealthy West, I think we need to repent. We need to cry out to God not to not to give us more to do, but to give us a passion for His glory and a passion for the good of all peoples that will do what He's already given us to do. And you know what? Just so we're clear, uh, these two passions are uh, totally linked, connected. They go together. It's not one or the other. Oh, I am passionate for God's glory, but I don't care about all peoples. I'm, oh, I care about all peoples. Well, God's glory, whatever. If we're truly passionate for God's glory then we'll be passionate for the good of all peoples. Because God must be, should be, glorified by all peoples. John Piper says, uh, the perp- missions exist because worship doesn't. Our purpose in missions is that God would be glorified among all peoples. And the good of all peoples, the good of all people. I care about people. I love peoples. I love those people groups out there. Their, their good only comes when they know and are able to glorify God. Therefore, the psalmist writes, declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all peoples. That's Old Testament stuff. That was God's design from the beginning. That's why He said, we're going to have a court of Gentiles. We're going to have a place where foreigners can come and know Me. You're going to be an example, Israel. God's Word teaches that His glory is to be declared among all peoples. God deserves to be glorified among all peoples. He desires to be glorified among all 11,000 plus people groups. He deserves to receive glory from every single one of those 6,000 people groups that still doesn't have the Gospel. And those who share Jesus' passion for God's glory will passionately give their lives for the good of all peoples. They're connected. And maybe this morning... Uh, Jesus' example, His passion, His seeing, man, there is no way these people, these foreigners, these Gentiles, they can't, can't, even, can't even come to pray without being you know, knocked over by a dove changer guy, a dove seller. Maybe Jesus' example has stirred your passions. Your passions for God's glory and for the good of all peoples. And you're wondering, so, so, so what can I do? What can I do? Well, I want us to understand, you know, this is a team effort. Taking the gospel to, uh, into other cultures that have never heard, or even to, to those in our own culture who've heard and, and yet not believed, it's the job of all of us. We all, as the body of Christ, have a part to play. And what that means is that you must seek the Lord, I think individually even, as a church, seek counsel with the elders, with the leaders of your church. What part can I play? What part should I play? And to help you, to help us do that in your notes, this is just a start, I've included a, a practical list. 20 things you can do to to help see God glorified among all peoples. 
But let me be very clear about this list. Lists aren't always great. This is not a to-do list. This isn't a checklist. Oh, I did that, did that, that. You aren't going to earn God's favor or feel better about yourself. That's not the point. It's not a competition to see who shares Jesus' passions. This list is specifically for those whose passions have been stirred by the Lord. This is a list to help you grow in, uh, express, and share the passions of Christ. Much of, much of the list comes from, it's just a little editing by me, from OMF, Six Ways to Reach God's World. So they have six different ways and then these lists under there, different practical things you can do. I'm going to leave you to look at the list. Maybe you can talk about it in your small groups. Maybe there's something you can do together. I do, just do want to point out uh, number 12 on the list is we got a table back there. It's, you know, you know encourage our missionaries. Tom was right about there are missionaries, there are places that Christmas is going to come and go. When we were in Thailand, Christmas was only recognized in Bangkok in the shopping center uh, with Santa Claus. That was Christmas. There was, it wasn't a holiday. So the missionaries, comes and goes for many of them without even any recognition. Go through that list. Look at that list. See if there are things that you and your small group maybe even can do together. And if there's something that, oh, I don't really understand that. How can I do that? Uh, something that you might be interested in, you want more definition about, whether it's on the list or something you're thinking about, you're not sure how to move forward, I would invite you to come and talk to me personally. I, uh, Bridges, would, would more than love to help you express the passion that God is stirring in your heart to give Him glory for the good of all peoples. So Tom's going to come and lead us in communion. We're about to celebrate, uh, remember, do this in remembrance of me, Jesus says. Remember the broken body and spilt blood of our Lord Jesus. And I want us to think about that the crucifixion is the ultimate demonstration of Jesus' passions, the passion of the Christ, right? That's what we call it. It's His passion for God's glory, and it shows its passion for the good of all peoples. He went to the cross to provide a way for God to be glorified by all peoples. Glorified by redeemed people. And so I want to remind you again, as the redeemed of the Lord, of what Paul uh, said. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God. God in your body. On the cross, Jesus Christ, He purchased, he purchased your life. It's His. You can't be His and still be yours. And therefore, our charge, our command, as we partake in communion today, and as we walk out of this church building, as we are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God, our command is to glorify God in our body, to live for Him, to allow His passion for God's glory and the good of all peoples to rule our lives. He should be ruling, guiding principles, values in our life. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that I pray that we would see your passion.
We would see all that you uh, represent, all that you desire, all that you love and care about, Lord. And, and as your servants, as your followers, as, as believers in you, as those who've received forgiveness for our sins because of your crucified body, Lord, I pray, I pray that you would stir in us the proper passions, your passions, your passions for for God, for the glory of God, your passions for all peoples, that we would care more about these things than we care about our very lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.